Hi, this is Ada. So even though we finished our second season slash semester and are preparing for season three, we had the honor of doing a live recording at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival at their podcast lounge, hosted by the Potluck Podcast Collective. So we have a bonus episode. Just what you wanted. More school. We invited Oliver Wang to join us. Oliver Wang is a sociology professor who teaches at Cal State Long Beach, and he has taught many classes specifically about Asian American cinema. So we're excited to have him as a guest to continue our season two exploration of Asian Americans in Love. So here's us on Saturday, April 29th at the Far East Lounge in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles, talking about the 1961 musical Flower Drum Song. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome to Saturday School. You might be thinking, I thought Saturday school was over. It's, it's summer school time. <laughs> Just because it's summer doesn't mean we stop learning, right? Yeah, this is the cram school edition where um, you get ahead of your peers for the fall. <laughs> this is the Kumon of podcasting is what you're saying? It absolutely is. I should introduce our special guest. We have Oliver Wang here today. He is a... I, I, it's hard to introduce you because it's basically like seven things in a row. <laughs> but professor, author, DJ... Pop culture critic? Journalist. Journalist. There you go. There you yeah. go. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, I think that Ballet dancer? Father. My, Father. My, daughter, yeah. my daughter who refused to join us on this today, but, is, but she is sitting here, so she's in the house. So shout out to Ella. The last time we did a live podcast episode like this, we had Michael Kong, and we forced his two daughters to come to Saturday school. So we yeah. tried to do that again, but his daughters are approximately five and seven, and your daughter is... 12. Yeah, it's a little bit harder to force a 12-year-old to come. I have a 12-year-old nephew, so when I asked you, I was thinking, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> but that's the perfect summation of Saturday school. She wants to be a writer eventually, so I, was, I thought she would not pass up the opportunity. But I think mostly she didn't want to have to sit through Flower Drum Song, which I can slightly relate to, but <laughs> that's so you know, it's a fun film. So let me just say this much. I am so excited to be here with the two of you. I'm so hyped right now. So We're really excited to have you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because we've looked up to you basically our entire lives. Same here. <laughs> I love the work that you guys are doing. I love that you have a podcast dedicated to talking about Asian American cinema. Wow. I mean, this yeah. is the great thing about the state of media in 2017 is that that can be a thing. I mean, that had existed 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I would have been, I would have jumped all over that back then. So I'm really excited that the two of you are doing this. I'm very, very honored to be here as a guest. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, just to remind ourselves, there's a lot of Asian American cinema there is. that we can dig out of the archives. A lot of it's quite bad, but we don't have to talk about that. We talk about that too. Oh, we'll talk about it. We will definitely talk about it. <laughs> don't get me started. Brian and I started writing at Asia Pacific Arts, and that's how I met you. I don't that's know. That's how we met, yeah. Because then yeah. you, even though you were already well-established by then, you contributed to I did. I mean, I think I might have still been in grad school at that point, but when I discovered um, APA Arts, and this, was, this was out of UCLA, yeah. right? I was like, wow, this was sort of the Asian American college newspaper I'd, I'd waited my whole <laughs> life to see, and it just unfortunately wasn't at my college, but it was, yeah, it was just a really great outlet, and I immediately was like, I want to do something for this, so... For people who are just joining us, our first season we did Asian American comedies, and our second season was on Asian Americans in Love. And um, I asked you what Asian American romances stick out to you over the years, because we know that you've been watching a lot of Asian American films. 
And there's a lot of Asian American romances, but there's not that many that are super memorable in the sense that, you know, you're really, really rooting for them to get together. <laughs> I don't know if you would agree with that. Most films have romance. It's just like this thing that we do as when we write scripts. We just feel like someone needs to get together. Right. But it always feels like an obligation as opposed to we, like, we want to talk about romance. We want to talk about like attraction. Right. Not to get too historical about this, though, I guess this is partly a historical podcast, but I was just reflecting on the fact that um, this is the 20th anniversary of films like Shopping for Fangs, like Yellow, uh, and so forth. And what's striking is when those films first came out, and I, I wrote a lot about them at the time, they were really groundbreaking simply because they showed young Asian Americans falling in love. In, in 1997, that felt really revolutionary. And I think in the 20 years since then, the idea of an Asian American romantic comedy probably seems as generic as any other group's romantic comedies. But I don't think it's changed that dramatically in a sense that it's, it still feels surprising to us, um, if only because it's so rare outside of the circles, such as things like the film festival circuit and those things, that something that's completely pedestrian, which is Asian Americans falling in love with each other, we just so rarely see depicted. And so... I mean, to kind of bring this to Flower Drum Song, you know, this was from the early 1960s. So it's there in the history. It's just these are very much kind of forgotten and undertold stories in that respect. Well, it's interesting you bring up the class of 1997. I mean, those films had romance in them, but I don't think we remember them as romantic films. And because they're not, they're not genre films in that way, they, they, I think first and foremost they want to be indie films. Yeah. And uh, I think that's also a break from the Flower Drum Songs, which are more overtly... We are performing a kind of, of genre. And I think now looking back on it, we kind of cherish the fact that there were these kind of genre attempts outside of just trying to be indie and trying to be authentic and to the streets. Right. I mean, I blame Tarantino a lot because I think Yellow and Shopping for Fangs both owe a lot to very nonlinear kind of postmodern storytelling. And I'm not saying it's all Tarantino, but it very much was in that 90s mode of indie films that Brian's talking about. Um, and then you, we, what we've seen in the 20 years since then is we're sort of more of an embrace of just classic genre in that respect. So out of all the films that you've seen, why was it Flower Drum Song that you want to talk about? I think, number one, it's an interesting film to debate about whether or not it qualifies as Asian American. And partially it's because the writer and director of the film and of the musical that it's based off of were not Chinese or Asian American, though the original source material, the book itself, was written by uh, a Chinese American author. C.Y. Lee. Yes, exactly, C.Y. Lee. So I should qualify this by noting, you know, I used to teach Asian American film and video at UC Berkeley uh, back in the late 90s and early 00s. And we always, you know, that class usually begins with the idea that the that what we define as Asian American cinema begins post-movement. So it's the films coming out of the 1970s. I mean, the origins of visual communications and what used to be called Nata is now called Cam. So, you know, Chan is Missing is sort of like the first narrative feature film. But then Flower Drum Song never really fits comfortably into that narrative because it's so much earlier, because it's pre-movement, and because it is this big Hollywood, Rodgers and Hammerstein production. Um, it's kind of a funny film in that respect. And I, I feel like it completely deserves to be part of the conversation, but it always gets a little bit of an asterisk for those reasons. Um, but I figure if you're going to have a podcast talking about Asian American films, you got to bring in Flower Drum Song at some point, right? Yeah, there's a lot of films that we know we need to bring in at some point, but we weren't completely convinced that we should bring it in for love at first. So actually, it's good that you brought it up because it gives us an excuse. <laughs> 
it is a romance. I mean, at the heart of it, that's really what the narrative's around, even though, and I don't mean to get ahead of ourselves, even though I don't, I'm not convinced by any of the chemistry, <laughs> the romantic chemistry between any of the leads, but we can get to that later. I think it's about coupling. Yes. As opposed to like falling in love. I mean, I think that gets talked about, but yeah. it's about who's going to end up with right. who. And that's, that's at the core right. of how everything needs to be resolved. Right. So I wonder, um, before we get too far, do you want to do an uh, overview of what Flower Drum Song is for people who have potentially never heard of this? For all the children out there who are listening to our podcast because they are forced to. It begins with a father and daughter arriving illegally on a boat from China. I came here to get married. There was some kind of deal arranged, and it turns out he runs a nightclub. And he has his eyes set on one of the dancers. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You're going to marry her. That's the only thing that's changed. Who has her eyes set on um, the James Shigeta character. What can we do? I don't know, but I'll think of something. And it just gets kind of messy. You see what happens when you leave it to young people to fall in love naturally? You and your American plan. And then it becomes a... Um, conflict between those who are first generation and second generation. This is not China, this is a different world, and here a man has a right to choose his own wife. As well as those who are Americanized versus non-Americanized, and it plays out through song and dance, and at the end, somebody needs to get together, and so, so we can live happily ever after. Yeah, it's not just a love triangle, it's a love... At least a rectangle. I think it's a pentagram, actually. Well, I think the pentagram, the fifth element is the most interesting. We should mention the casting because, I mean, these are some heavyweights of Asian-American talent of the post-war period, but pre-movement period. Yeah, so um, the daughter's played by Miyoshi Umeki, who to this day is the only person of Asian descent Asian-American women to win an Oscar for acting. That happened right. in the 1950s for Sayonara and has not happened since. This is where normally someone would put in like an Emma Stone or Scarlett Johansson joke, but we, we don't have to go there. No. <laughs> and then Nancy Kwan is fresh off of her success in the role of Susie Wong, so she was pretty well known. James Shigeta was a crooner, a good-looking guy. He was in Crimson Kimono. He'd already done Crimson Kimono yes. by that point, yeah. right? Yeah. That was our season two. Season premiere. Great episode, by the way. Thanks. We started with James Shigeta, and we come back to James Shigeta. And then you have Jack Sue, who plays the nightclub owner, Sammy Fong, and he had a big role uh, a couple of decades later on the Barty Miller show. So I think along with Pat Morita, he was one of the few Asian faces you would have seen on network television in a, in a particular generation. Um, I love that Benson Fong, who plays the kind of paternal father figure, is only a year older than the other main principals, but he's made to look very old in it. <laughs> and then James Hong is in it as a supporting role. Oh my God, that's right, yeah. A very young James Hong, right? You recognize that voice. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned that Jack Sue's on television. I think just by necessity, a lot of these performers at the time had to be from stage, from television, from right. film. They had to have careers that span different sorts of media. Um, I, just you being a historian of, of Asian American music, well, could, can you say a little bit more about the, some of their music careers? Well, I mean, I think the most notable was probably, I was going to say James Shigeta, except I think very few people remember that he got his career started not as an actor, which is obviously what he became better known for, but he had a pair of albums, and I forget what label he recorded for, but these were in the 1950s. He called himself Jimmy Shigeta back then. The albums are worth finding just for the cover art because he's wearing sweaters, and he has one, a very debonair one, where he has his... His back is sort of turned to the camera, but he's turning around looking at you, and he's wearing a you know a very nice suit and tie. Um, the music is not that memorable. Like, I mean, compared to Pat Suzuki, which would have been a contemporary back then, Pat Suzuki was in the very successful 
Broadway musical run of Flower Drum Song, but when they wanted to cast for the movie, I think they felt like she wasn't, I don't know, photogenic enough, or maybe because Nancy Kwan had a brighter star because of the success of the world of Susie Wong. So I'm almost positive that Nancy doesn't do her own singing in the film. No, she doesn't. Right. If you've ever listened to the original Broadway musical version of cast album for Flower Drum Song, you can hear Pat. I mean, Pat could sing. When I have a brand new hairdo with my eyelashes all in curl, I float as the clouds on hairdo. I enjoy being a girl. So yeah, I think you know music and really a lot of nightclub stuff and the Flower Drum Song is very much built around the explosive Chinatown nightclub scene in San Francisco of that era, which is something that gets written about in Arthur Dong's uh, Forbidden City, USA. I mean, looks at that whole history. And so I think the film takes advantage of the fact that you have this nightclub industry happening in SF Chinatown in that era. And, and the, the film manages to really blend in a lot of that real life history happening behind the scenes. I have two pieces of trivia, and it's not because I'm a music historian, but because I watched the DVD of Flower Drum Song with the Nancy Kwan commentary. Mm. <laughs> I haven't seen that. So you mentioned James Shigeta. He had a singing career before in Japan, actually. Miyoshi Umeki did, too, and they actually knew each other back in Japan mm. before they came over and did Flower Drum Song together. Okay. And then the story behind Jack Sue being involved is that um, they were doing research for a Flower Drum Song, and then they found a nightclub in San Francisco. He was working there as like a stand-up, as a host, and Gene Kelly at the time was the one directing the stage production, so he's the one who saw Jack Sue and brought him over to do the stage show, and during the stage version, he was a supporting character, and then eventually he became the Sammy Fong role, and then he made it his own in the film. He was really great in the film. Like yeah. A lot of physical humor. You could see that he had a background in doing comedy because he really is the comic relief for much of the film. He's also great. I mean, I think dramatically, he's very strong in the film, better than, than most of the, uh, the actors. He's the one who probably surprised me the most in terms of when I first see him on screen and what I expect of him versus how I feel about him towards the end. That's kind of vague, but let's just jump straight into these love stories, I guess. So you guys have probably seen this multiple times a long time ago, but I actually just watched it last week. <laughs> What'd you think? It was kind of funny because... I was watching the movie going, wait, who am I rooting for, you know? And it's sort of n none of them. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, do you want to explain why for you? I don't know if it's the same. Well, okay, so I just assumed the couple was James Shigeta and Nancy Kwan, just purely aesthetically, right? Because of the two best-looking people, is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, okay. definitely. And Nancy Kwan is on the cover of the DVD. Right. Because she's Nancy Kwan. Yeah, exactly. You're introduced to the Jack Sue Nancy Kwan relationship first, and she's like the dancer at the nightclub, and he's the nightclub owner. And you can tell he's like much older than her, and there's sort of a, you know, he buys her a lot of things, and she like throws these fits and stuff. So you don't naturally root for that couple. Um, but then she finds James Shigeta's character, and they're beautiful, right? They're, you know, they're like singing together in like these beautiful sets of San Francisco. At first you think, oh yeah, yeah, you root for them. But then like Nancy Kwan's character, her intentions aren't pure. So then you're not sure if you're supposed to root for them. I, that didn't necessarily take her out because, you know, she could have a change of heart, blah, blah, blah. Then there's also the Miyoshi Umeki character, who's the Chinese bride. And I think I didn't know what to do with her at first because I don't think I saw her as, you know, the Oscar winner, <laughs> who I bet people at the time 
when they saw the movie at first, like she was probably one of the biggest stars of the film at the point, so maybe it was easier for them to root for her naturally, but because, you know, I'm looking at it how many years later, like she was sort of this passive, quiet girl that would just be married to whoever <laughs> the contract demanded. So I, I didn't necessarily root for her either. And then there was another character which makes the, what is it called, Pentagon? She's like an old friend of James Shigeta's character, but also a seamstress for Nancy Kwan. I don't know how that works in, but she was... She's the friend zone. Yeah. She was in the friend she zone. She was in the friend zone, but she was also not like... I don't want to say that like it's bad to be on the extremes, but like, you know, you have this one extreme, which is kind of this, the Asian-American women stereotype of being very, very passive and very quiet. And then the other ex extreme, which is kind of this dragon lady, like I'm going to like seduce you and get whatever I want. And she was kind of like the middle ground that I think maybe was more relatable, even though she didn't have as much, um, well, at first she didn't have as much screen time, but then she probably has like the most amazing dance Surreal. number. Which in the is, entire, yeah. <laughs> especially after that dance number, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, what are you doing, James Shigeta? <laughs> I'm totally Team Helen. I was kind of Team Helen until I realized James Shigeta couldn't get his act together, and I was like, I don't know if he deserves her. <laughs> I've never read the original novel. Have either of you? I have. So does the Helen Chow character exist in the original novel? Not, not only does she exist, but she commits suicide. Whoa, that's it's dark. It's really dark, yeah because she doesn't get the man, is that? I think she felt compromised by spending a night with him. Ooh. Oh, in the novel, they actually have an affair. In the film, they don't. She just pines over him and then he comes back to her place after kind of a drunken night, and, but then he passes out on the couch. She just takes care of him. Yeah, yeah, so it's most, much more innocent in the film. Ooh, I, like, I kind of like the film less knowing this from the source material now. Oh, that's, that's sorted. When I saw you say Team Helen, I was like, that's what I thought too. But then I read, I read that and I was like, oh, I was not supposed to be Team Helen. <laughs> what, what about you, Brian? I mean, I have a similar reaction. I think it's the Miyoshi Umeki character is, and, and the Nancy Kwan characters, they're, they're placed as, like, as symbols, like one for Americanization, one for like, retaining your traditional values as, a, as an Asian woman. And to me, both are just there to give a moral dilemma for James Shigeta's character. I don't really see Helen's character as in between. She just seems like a human being. She's there just because she, she loves somebody. I suppose the other ones who seem to be used the word contract earlier, uh, whether that's an economic contract or like some kind of social, familial, cultural contract. Or even when we see that she falls in love with him, it kind of feels like how I would react if I saw James Shigeta just because he's so good looking. <laughs> I think it takes a little bit more than that. I would say as you know, a second generation ABC watching the film, the reason why I gravitate towards Helen, I mean, there are a few reasons. One is because she's sort of the Asian-American character that I would have the easiest time kind of understanding within kind of the three different women who are all fighting for Shigeta's affections. You know, I think for reasons that both of you just explained with Umeki's character, she doesn't really have much to do in the film. And as I was mentioning earlier, I also don't think that she is able to perform a lot of the kind of basic chemistry you would want out of someone who is falling in love with someone. So the songs indicate that she's she has a thing for Wing Ta, which is Shigeta's character, but you never actually feel it. It's, it's never convincing. In the same way that Nancy Kwan's interest, she's supposed to be superficial in terms of that she wants to be with him for economic gain. Like she does that well, like she performs Gold Digger very well. But Helen was the only one who I felt like, oh, I actually can buy the idea 
that you're really in love with this guy. And that to me is what I kind of glommed onto. And so the first time I watched the film, I kind of assumed they would be the ones to get together because they're also the two ABCs that temperamentally seem to make the best fit for one another as opposed to sort of this Chinese immigrant who you get very little personality from and then the Linda Lowe character, which is too much personality, like Helen is sort of the, she's the Goldilocks, right? She's just in between and she seems just right. And they have this amazing, I mean really an amazing musical number called Love Look Away. Which is long. I mean, it's like the longest number. It's completely surreal. But it goes to nothing afterwards. And the symbolism, knowing the novel's narrative around it, it makes part of that musical number richer to understand because there is this real sense of loss that's in the film version that knowing that she committed suicide now in the book, it's like, oh, okay, I can kind of get it thematically how they're working with that. Yeah, definitely. But I don't know about you guys, but I think towards the end, just because I was looking for somebody to root for, maybe looking too hard, but in the end, I think I kind of rooted for Jack Sue and Nancy Kwan's character because they seemed kind of like equals yes. to a certain extent. They are. Like going back to what I was saying in the beginning, I was like, oh, this Jack Sue character just seems like this sleazy older man, right? But he has this great musical number too called Don't Marry Me. If you want a man you can depend on, I can absolutely guarantee I will never fail to disappoint you, baby. Don't marry me. Instead of being a really sad song about being contracted to marry a person that both of you know <laughs> you're not in love with each other, um, it's sung in a very joyful, almost like singing in the rain kind of way. <laughs> if you want to have attractive children, baby, don't marry me. Well, it's the, like, um, My Fair Lady, get, get me to the, to the church on time. It's, it's the equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just done so well, and he's so great in it. So it, I'm curious, because you just watched this film for the first time. What did you think of the, of the songs in the film? I love the songs. Oh, not all of them, but for the most part. Yeah, I think plot-wise, I, I think it's just sort of a generic plot. But I think the song and dance numbers are super fun. Don't marry me. The Grant Avenue one is really fun. And Chop Suey, if you just don't listen to the lyrics, is a, a great time. <laughs> If you just don't listen to the lyrics. Mixed with all the Hokeman Valley <laughs> Please tell me you'll cut in Chop Suey during the final version of this podcast. Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta do that. I like that we're recording this next to a, a storefront that's called Chop Suey. The Far East Chop Suey. Chop Suey as a song is easy to ridicule, and if, if people get to listen to the lyrics, you'll understand why. But in the film, it does have this amazing dance sequence that kind of parallels and follows it, um, which I, I just thought was, the first time I saw it was just kind of mind-blowing, because I just had not seen... And again, you got to remember, I saw this back in you know the mid-90s for the first time. I just hadn't seen sort of Asian-Americans singing and dancing in a classic Hollywood musical sort of way. So it was just very eye-opening at the time. And they're so cool. Yes. They look like they're like straight from Broadway. Yeah, they're great. Oh, yeah, professionally trained, the whole nine. Yeah. 
Nancy Kwan was actually, you know, thinking of being a ballet. She went to ballet school. And um, Patrick Ariarte? Uh, yeah. The, the, the brother? The younger brother. That, that's what I remember the most when I watched it for the first time. Him in a baseball outfit and that, yes. that scene with the two younger girls. Um, just having the time of their lives and thinking, whatever happened to him? Like, he should have had a career as a child star or whatever it might be. And he has a single best scene in the entire film, which is at the very end of Chop Suey, where um, the Benson Fong you know, patriarch character comes in and basically just shuts down everything. And unfortunately, this is audio, so you can't see it. But basically, Patrick's character makes a square with his fingers, the shape of a square. But he doesn't say square. All he does is he makes the gesture and then he says, strictly. <laughs> and I just think it was like the single best comedic moment in the entire film. I think Tarantino ripped that off in Pulp Fiction. That was a oh, score really? scene. Right. <laughs> yeah, don't be such a... Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it's the dancing, not the songs for me that I hmm. remember. Um, I mean, the Grand Avenue, it's catchy. I enjoy being a girl. But it's, it's how these are physicalized through, through costume and um, through choreography that I, I remember the most from it. I don't disagree with you about that at all. I will point out, though, like a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals of this era, the Flower Drum Song soundtrack became a legitimate hit just on its own. And for a while, I was doing a kind of a very small pet collector's project in trying to track down the different versions that were out there. And, you know, off the top of my head, there has to have been at least half a dozen plus just people covering the entire soundtrack. So sort of like these jazz covers with no vocals, it's instrumental. And I think that was not uncommon for the big hit musicals is that people were just trying to capitalize. But it is very interesting to see how a lot of the songs from that movie have transcended time and popped up in other places. So I Like Being a Girl. It was used in an ad at some point in the early 2000s. Sarah Jessica Parker. When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curl Grant Avenue, for example, shows up again at the end of Chan is Missing. That seems very, very purposeful in Wayne Wang's point. Um, sadly, Chop Suey has never had the second act in life that it so richly deserves. Um, and Love Look Away is actually a really well-made ballad. Pat Suzuki does a version of it. She's recorded it at least twice. Don't ask me why I know these things. And she records a version of Love Look Away that's in a medley of songs from Flower Drum Song that was in one of her albums that then Renee Tajima uses in a scene from her documentary My America. It's an amazing version. She just gives it so much weight and depth to this forlorn love ballad. So I think that's actually the songs from it are actually quite good. I mean, maybe not the lyric writing necessarily. And again, that's mostly picking on, well, actually, it's not just Chops. A lot of the lyrics are really not great at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they were okay back then. Like, they, they knew how to write a, a nice little ditty, I guess, yeah. And they did Sound of Music. Oh, yeah, Sound of Music. And for people who don't know, it was nominated for five Academy Awards, including mm. sound and music for scoring. Ada wrote in her notes, we're looking at these very detailed, very colorful notes on the film, that those were the same categories that in 2006, Memoirs of a Geisha were also nominated for. I know. I'm not sure what that means. I don't think it's anything good. And Memoirs of a Geisha won three of them. Whereas Flower Drum Song was only nominated. <laughs> so it didn't win anything. <laughs> Oscar so white. 
1962. <laughs> Looking at it as a piece of pop culture history, I go back to the DVD, but they have these bonus materials where they talk about casting an all Asian American cast. And it's interesting to hear them talk about what a big deal it is in the same exact way that we're talking about what a big deal Crazy Rich Asians is. <laughs> you know, like, wow, John Nam Chu is casting a movie with an all Asian American cast. I mean, if you think about it, when would have the next example of a major Hollywood production with an all Asian American cast be? Would it be all the way to Joy Luck Club, which would have been, what, 30 years later? And then how many years later until the next one? Which... Would you count Memoirs of a Geisha in that? That's not Asian American. Yeah, they weren't looking for Asian Americans, right? Right, so after that, then... I think it's Crazy Rich Asians, right? I kind of feel like Karate Kid 2 needs to count somewhere in there, because besides... The lead. Besides, yeah, Ralph Macchio's character, every, there are all these veterans of Asian American theater and film. So that could be a future episode somewhere down the line. You can talk about that. That's probably still the Same, 80s, yeah. right? Yeah, late 80s. So that's still 20 years later. Yeah. So every 20 years? Mulan? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's coming up. No, the, the animated. I mean, the, the voice cast, except for Eddie Murphy. Did they even do All-American? Pretty close. The main ones are. I was just telling Brian that for all the Asian American films that I've watched, I have some big gaps. One is Flower Drum Song. Two is I Never Seen Mulan. <laughs> I know. Oliver just gave me the same look that I imagine Brian gave when he was on the phone with me yesterday. Your parents never thought when you were a kid this would be good. We were too old for that. We weren't kids by the time it came out. Yeah, we are in high school. Okay. All right, maybe yeah. a little too old for Mulan, though. But you're a parent now. You should, well. Yeah, I'm sure I'll watch it eventually. So when would you show your kids Flower Drum Song? <laughs> I mean, I think she was there. I don't think she was watching very carefully, but she was there when I was watching it. Because she likes the music and dancing. Right. Yeah. And she was like, Mom, I don't really know if I buy this whole immigrant narrative story that's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a square, Mom. <laughs> so speaking of all Asian casts, Juanita Hall... Okay. Probably mentioned yeah. that happened. Um, She's African American for people who don't know what you're talking about. Is that yellow face? I mean, I don't want to take shots at Juanita because she's very good in it. Somehow, I could look at her more than I could watch anybody who say in the Good Earth. Like somehow, they didn't chinkify her too much, or at all. I don't think. Yeah, I think she already looks ethnic. I guess so. You didn't have to. Yeah, she played Vietnamese and. South Pacific. And she was one of the ones in the stage version of Flower Drum Song that made it into the film. So um. This seems like a, a paper waiting to happen. It's probably already been written, right? The, the, the black yellow face. The transracial nature of Juanita Hall and as Madame Liang. I mean, I have to say, it never bothered me at the time. It still doesn't really. I think maybe partly it's just it, when people are of color are cast for other people of color, I'm far more sympathetic to that than when we you know the kind of classic whitewashing that we don't need to get into. And her character is very good. Like, she's very good at playing kind of... She doesn't have a lot of screen time, but when she shows up, she makes the most of it in terms of those scenes. And she kind of is the... In a, very much the counter to the Benson Fong, very traditionalist, conservative Chinese patriarch. And so that's also, like, what makes her character very charming to watch in that respect. Yeah, definitely. Have you seen the David Henry Huang version? I did. How is that different? So, I mean, just some quick background. So, David Henry Huang, the playwright, restaged uh, Flower Drum Song, I guess, sometime in the early 00s? 2002-ish. Okay. Here in Los Angeles. And he kept most of the same songs, but really redid the entire plot. So, now it's really about an entertainment. It's, it, it basically turns the focus, if I recall, 
really just on the nightclub. Um, so it's really all the characters work in and out of the nightclub primarily. Um, and he also adds a couple of new songs to it besides uh, some of the old ones. I mean, I thought it was fine. It, it, I like the idea of wanting to take this, you know, this old property and kind of give it new life and reimagine it. I don't know if the reimagining was completely successful as a entertainment product in and of itself. You know, I thought the ways in which he reused the songs in different ways, in some cases very subversively, was was really clever. I think I'm a little bummed that he didn't keep Love Look Away, which I think is one of the stellar songs on the soundtrack, and I think it's one of the ones that he dropped. And I don't re remember at all the new songs that he wrote. But, it, I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting thing, and I could imagine at some point someone looking at Flower Drum Song and thinking, you know, it's been 50 years now. Maybe we should, like, redo this and, you know, recast it and bring it into the present. And I don't know if I would necessarily be against that so long as it receives like a significant rewrite in different parts. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how, I mean, the, one of the reasons, as you say, that he did a revival is because he wanted to update it. And this idea that Asian Americans have a complicated relationship with the film, it's probably different depending on which generation, like when you saw it. Looking at it now, what is your impression? I want to hear Brian's thoughts first. The yeah. film? It feels so modern to me. That's Watching it now. Because we still don't get to see young Asian Americans get to be young on screen. Mm. And, and, and also, I mean, that we talk about that surrealist scene. I mean, that's a different kind of modernism that we're talking about. But, like, that it seems to be a film that wants to be in the future. Its aspirations is to break through. And as opposed to a lot of what we see, if Asian American or otherwise, films need to be so... It feels too classical now. Uh, and that's probably why I think I like the Helen character so much. She got to be that surrealist mm. scene. Like, the one that felt like this is from a different a world that we're still catching up with. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking of that, you know, the big Bravo end scene to La La Land, which borrows a lot from the tradition of musicals in which that Love Look Away scene is very much part of. And this kind of goes back to the point that you were making a, a moment ago, Ada, which is that I think when I first saw the film in the 90s and the ways in which it was received within that particular moment of Asian American studies and Asian American cultural politics, Flower Drum Song was seen as very, you know, problematic, though. I don't know. I don't think we were even using the term problematic back then. But the idea was that, oh, this is some kind of like whitewashed and quasi-racist orientalist thing. And that we're not supposed to embrace it. And I think the main difference is that 20 years later, because of everything that's intervened within Asian American cinema since then, I think it becomes much easier to embrace Flower Drum Song and really see it in the way that Brian, you were just describing as being a very kind of modernist um, or even futurist project for its time. Um, because in the larger context of everything that has happened in the 40 years of kind of quote-unquote official Asian American cinema, Flower Drum Song, it's easier to fit within this broader narrative, but also, I think, easier to celebrate what it did well in a way where, at the time, it was easier to bash on because there were so little other films around that the ways in which it stood out felt again, problematic, because it wasn't written or directed by an Asian American, because you had songs like Chop Suey that seemed like a very like lazy way to talk about assimilation and, and all of these other things. I mean, one of the things I wrote about the film at some point is just the joy of performance and the pleasure in seeing people sing and dance. I mean, it's why we go to musicals, right? The fact that, you know, everyone in here, okay, with the exception of Juanita Hall, you know, uh, we're Asian or Asian American, I think there's still something about that that's incredibly powerful. And partially it's because we don't see, um, I mean, we see a lot of Asian American faces in cinema, especially at a festival like this, but not necessarily in the musical context. 
it's true, we don't see Asian American musicals very often. In fact, Brian and I were talking about that and we were thinking, what if we did do a future season on musicals, like strictly musicals, and we were thinking, there's probably just Flower Drum Song and then H.P. Mendoza <laughs> right? <laughs> In, in the strict sense of, you know, like you're breaking the quote-unquote reality of, of the world in order to bring right. it to song. But if you expand musical to include what you would find in the musical section of Netflix or Blockbuster, you get concert films, you get documentaries, and um, they're actually a lot more yeah. than you would imagine. Yeah, so that's what we're thinking of doing, which is why we're really glad you brought up Flower Drum Song, because it's the perfect summer cram class to transition ourselves to thinking about our next season, which... I think will be about Asian American musicals. Or musical films, music films. Or musical Asians. So before we wrap up, I, I just need to ask, can we include wholeheartedly Flower Drum Song within the pantheon of Asian American cinema? I mean, you know what? I, I, okay, this is something that I've found just during the process of Saturday School as we're revisiting older films. I think there's a lot of stuff you can forgive if you're watching something decades later. You know, when I think about people finding Flower Drum Song problematic, it's not that I don't understand that. I completely understand that. And especially if it was during the time where that was the only representation and people assume that, you know, Asian, you know, Asian American women are only like this or like this. Like, I, I see why they would be very irritated by that. But, you know, how many years later? 56. Like, crazy. That's crazy. I know, 56 years later, me watching it, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying everything is perfect now, but I, I'm not worried, <laughs> you know, that anyone thinks I'm either like May Lee or Linda Lowe. So, You're Helen. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think this is an integral part of Asian American. I mean, this is something we've always struggled with, and even working for a film festival now, um, how do we define the parameters of Asian American cinema? We, we played Dave Boyle's films. He's not Asian American, but he made White and Rice and, and Surrogate Valentine, and we, we fully yeah. embrace. And there are definitely moments watching Flower Drum Song where I feel like, I think there's Asian American voice behind this. Whether it's a voice, like a, a spoken voice or singing voice, but also like a performance voice. And I think that that certainly qualifies it in being talked about as Asian-American film. And the sensibility, I mean, C.Y. Lee was trying to get at, what was it like for that generation of Chinese-Americans post-war but pre-65, which is, we don't really talk about it. And this is sort of one of the few kind of documents from that particular moment that have survived. Um, so I think just based on casting and theme, like I think it completely belongs within that particular conversation, partly because of when it was done. It really, it also stands both in a sense, outside of that, but within it, if that, that makes that sounds completely contradictory. But um, I certainly would not leave it out. And when I was teaching that aforementioned class at Berkeley, I would always show it most semesters because I thought it was important to bring in, partly to show that these themes around the generation gap, around the conflicts between immigrants and their American-born kids, like these were not unique to sort of just the films emerging out of the 80s and 90s. I mean, this goes all the way back to Flower Drum Song. It goes all the way back to um, you know, eat a bowl of tea, which was based off a novel written in kind of the same era too. So, these are not new things that we're that we're using cinema as a way to explore. It's really part of a much longer history of our cultural production and whatnot. It's time for us to wrap up. <laughs> thank you. But thank you so much for no, this is joining so fun. us. Please have me back. I love this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially if our next season is about music. What's the Asian American hip hop musical? We've got to think about that one.
You can hear more of Oliver on places like NPR and KPCC, but you should also pick up his book, Legions of Boom, Filipino-American mobile DJ crews of the San Francisco Bay Area. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sats School. Class dismissed.